Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Saturn Vox podcast, where discussions of philosophy meet the liminal space we weave in dreams. This is your favorite she-they pronoun person and firm believer in the queer revolution, Michaela Ann. This week, I am welcoming folk witch and devotee to Babylon, Cooper Kaminsky. I have been dying to have a chat about queerness in Kabbalah for some time now, and there really was no better person to ask than a non-binary Jewish witch. Cooper gives us their insight into the intersection between the queer and Jewish experience, into both Babylon and the Shekinah, and what it means to embody the middle pillar along the Tree of Life. As a Jewish practitioner and a Babylon devotee, Cooper is also able to give us their insight into the crossover between Jewish mysticism and Thelema, and the importance of remembering the roots of the practices we have changed and carried forward into the new age of Western esotericism. This episode touched on so many things that are immensely dear to my heart, and Cooper has such a wealth of wisdom, both lived and gathered. The contents of this episode is so important for a culture at large, in my opinion, and I am beyond delighted to share it with you now. It is truly an episode not to be missed. To find out more on Saturnbox, Check out their Instagram and Twitter at Saturnbox, or visit their website www.saturnbox.com. If you want to support the show towards goals of better equipment, merch, and bonus material, please check out the Patreon at www.patreon.com Saturnbox, where monthly book clubs are led. Hi, I'm Cooper. I'm so, so excited and happy to be here on the Saturn Vox podcast uh, today. I am an intuitive reader and a psychic medium that's based in Denver, Colorado. I do a lot outside of my intuitive work as a witch and practitioner of Jewish folk magic. I, um, I really like to stay involved and focused on kind of the intersection of queerness and Jewishness in my magic and mysticism. And uh, it's so wonderful to be sharing my voice today. Yeah, it's wonderful to have you. And we're happy to hear that lovely voice on the air. Um, so I'm, I'm extremely intrigued and interested in what you have to say about the intersection between queerness and Jewishness, uh, especially because I, I find in my own practice that it takes a little bit of digging to find that intersection. Uh, would you mind giving us a little bit of your own personal thoughts and experiences with that? Absolutely. Um, I mean, I think that magic and witchcraft especially is a very queer thing. And I think that, you know, we're, we both, witches and queers stand at the crossroads of, of subversion. Um, that's something that, that has always really been an important kind of uh, idea in in my practice. It's interesting in in Judaism and in Jewish mysticism because you're right. There, there is a little bit of digging that that has to be done, and I think ways to adapt and certain elements to embrace within both queer thought and also Jewish thought. Uh, so you can find that middle ground, that middle pillar, which we'll talk about a little more kabbalistically in in a few. Uh, but the, uh, there's a couple of things that I like to say when it comes to queerness. And the first thing is, you know, in, in Jewish mysticism, 
there's this belief that we are created, but Selim Elohim, and that's Hebrew for uh, in in the image of the divine, but not just the divine, the divine creator, right? So we're we are born in the image of divine creation itself. And because of that, that gives us the autonomy and the ability to be our own creators, however that looks like, you know, whether we're creating magic or art or creating our own self and identity, like that's all part of this B'Tselem Elohim umbrella. And I think that's really powerful. Um, and that really puts us, puts that in our hands for us to create and be whoever we want to be. Um, and since we are also created in the image of the divine, the divine is all things and all genders. And, and there's this absolute unity within that, that I, I feel really resonates with the queer experience and to be able to say, yeah, you know, I am, I am, non-binary and that is not only part of my gender identity that's part of my like mystical divine identity that's a really beautiful thing you know and and that goes you know all all ways in all directions with all genders and identities and that's usually what i lead with as far as how queerness and jewishness intersects in my practice um, but then there are some really wonderful bits and pieces that I think you don't always pick up as a Kabbalist or a magical practitioner, uh, but there's some sweet, like juicy secrets in, in other texts. Um, there's a wonderful discussion in the Talmud about how there aren't two genders. There are at least six or seven different genders and to be able to, uh, kind of have that uh, exploration and and to find in literal Jewish, not even occulted texts, just Jewish texts that there are that there have been discussions about gender and the responsibilities of different people with different genders. I, I think that you know that's something that is overlooked because Judaism has been assimilated with so many other Western practices and traditions that, those fine details really get lost and the robustness and that divine unification and uh, smorgasbord of identity and, and everything that's, it's all in there. Um, but it, you're right. It does take a little bit of digging. So, you know, the, the Talmud is usually where I look for most things regarding, well, both queerness, but also magic, especially there's a lot in there for that. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, a whole kind of one of the major tenets of Kabbalah is this idea of unification, right? Like unifying us with ourself, with every part of ourself, and then unifying every part of ourself with every part of the divine. Um, and that is very much a, like a macrocosmic model <laughs> for the queer experience, I think, in a lot of ways. So, yeah. Yeah, no, I love that. I did not know that about the Talmud, but I'm going to have to go and revisit that now that you mention it. What I think is super interesting is that I feel like a lot of people forget that because Judaism is a religion of the book, people tend to think re religions of the book stay homogenous over time, but that's actually completely false. Yeah. Even, you know, regardless of which people of the book you're referring to, there has been, you know, changes in different ages of, you know, you could even say that they've gone through their own aeon transformations over time. But within Judaism, there's seems like especially in the past there was a lot of acknowledgement that the divine was both masculine and feminine mm -hmm. and then there were subsequent ways that you know people or humans can enact usually through sexual ritual the recombining of the masculine and feminine to 
perform what you were referring to as rectification, this unification back to the all being. And in that way, it almost seems to me like, especially because in Jewish mysticism, just there's a concept called the Shekinah for those who don't know. And she's, she is the divine presence of God on earth, but we all kind of rep are filled with the Shekinah, which in turn makes all of us as humans actually passive receptacles, like a chalice, like the feminine Yanni to receive the creative energy of Elohim. And, But we also then are told, go out, create yourself, which makes us also the masculine as well. So I guess what I'm trying to ask is, do you think that the underlining implication of all of this is that there is a a queerness within all of us and it takes actually a more enlightened stance to be able to reject heteronormity and say, no, this my skin is both feminine and masculine. I I wear both masks. I have to in order to experience human existence. Yeah, absolutely. I I think that's that's so important and there's so many layers to it, you know, and it's not just, it's not just, you know, when we're talking about the Shekhinah, she's not just the feminine, right? Like it's in, I guess the more traditionally, Jewish Kabbalistic descriptions of her is like, she is the feminine in exile. Um, And in that way, she like, she is the occulted other. And I, I, aside from my Jewish practice, I also am uh, a devotee to Babylon and um, have an interest in Thelema. And, one of my favorite books I've read over the pandemic was The Eloquent Blood by Dr. Manon White. It's incredible. It's it's a book specifically about Babylon through queer and femme perspectives. Um, I highly recommend it. And something the world needs more of that. Absolutely. And and the cool thing is like it's it's been there. It's always been there. We've just never talked about it in that voice necessarily or in the way that we are now. And I think that's important. And um, she references, I believe, an anthropologist. And the term that she uses a lot in the book is uh, phallocentric in that we live in a phallocentric society and, and world where there's so much emphasis on the masculine to the point where it's not even a binary gender. There's just masculine and other. And within that other umbrella is the feminine, is the queer, is is all of that. And it's interesting to compare that back to the idea of the Shekhinah and how she is, you know, that that other aspect of the divine that's so beautiful and important and and it's not the equal and opposite. It's that it's that final puzzle piece that unifies everything together. And I think a lot about the LBRP, um, the Lesser Vanishing Ritual of the Pentagram. And one of the last lines we say during that ritual uh, for you ceremonial magicians out there is, and in the column stands a six-rayed star. Well, what is the six-rayed star? I mean, of course, there are different interpretations of it, but you know, relating that back to Kabbalah and Jewish thought, um, the six-rayed star is the star of David. It's Solomon's seal. You know, it's it's the six points. It's um, it's those six points intersecting with each other. And if we look at the star of David, um, we have two triangles intersecting with each other. Well, one of the Kabbalistic ideas about the star is that it is the masculine and feminine coming together as a unified whole. Why I think that's powerful in regards to the LBRP relating back to Judaism is in my research, I I really firmly believe that the LBRP is heavily derivative of a, uh, a prayer during the bedtime Shema in Judaism called the B'Shem Hashem prayer. And essentially what it is, is an angelic invocation. 
you say, in the name of the divine, I call in the four archangels. And instead of saying, you know, and in the middle is the six-rayed star, you say, and above my head, crown, I'm crowned by the Shekhinah. And the, the six-rayed star we're talking about, in, in a lot of ways, I really feel is this, you know, this sigil or this this egregore for the divine feminine interacting with the divine masculine and all of those aspects unifying with each other wow it's so beautiful i love that level of research and trying to understand where some of these like golden dawn or oto rituals are actually coming from because those uh the people that wrote the books on all of that did not really cite their sources yeah yeah absolutely oh just i didn't expect to ask this question but i i am extremely interested as another person who struggles to reconcile judaism with the lima yeah where on the one hand my ancestors are like please stop flirting with this and on the other hand my spirit guides are like you don't have to listen to your ancestors if you don't want to (laughs) what are uh how do you handle this dipping your toes into a tradition that has historic roots of anti-semitism yeah absolutely this has been uh it's a it's a big question to answer and it's an ongoing conversation that i have had with many of my colleagues, many of my Jewish colleagues and Thelemites and witches and um, to some degree interacting with it is an act of reclaiming some of the practices and ideas that have been so heavily claimed by the Golden Dawn and Thelema, you know, to be able to say, okay, you know, like this this is their perspective or refraction of uh, the Sephirot. But let's bring it back <laughs> into its source. I think, I think it's important to, you know, to, in- to interact with it as a, as an, as a form of reclamation. I think that's really important. Um, I also think that, you know, there are pieces to it as a, as a Jewish person, there are pieces in these Western esoteric practices that deepen one's Jewish understanding of Kabbalah. And I think the more important thing is the reverse of that. You know, I like to kind of um, heed uh, people who want to study Kabbalah in a Western esoteric context, because I think having more of that Jewish knowledge and Jewish background in Kabbalah is so incredibly important um, intellectually because that's where it comes from, uh, but also, you know, culturally to respect that that's where and, and who it comes from is really important, you know. So so I think that bridging that, that gap <laughs> in the name of respect and reclamation is really, really important. Um, I also think that, you know, if we're talking about Thelema in direct relation to Crowley, uh, he is a very complicated uh, person. But something that I've always found really interesting is that there are some passages that are, I think, somewhat rightfully interpreted as as anti-Semitic within his canon. But he also did things to um to counter that a little bit as well um and it's by no means an an excuse i i just think that there's other pieces of nuance to that it's really important um he was hired by the nazis in world war ii to help create magical technology and magical warfare to win the war um but we know from history that he was kind of double crossing them and two timing them and giving them false information about uh, rituals <laughs> and um, 
you know, magical work. And he was basically creating counter magic during the entirety of, of his t- relationship with Germany during that period. And uh, he also had a very strong relationship with British intelligence during that time too. So it's, it's interesting. And I, and I think that has to be a part of the conversation as well too. And we know that as a figure in the occult, he ran his mouth a lot <laughs> about a lot of different things. Um, so it's interesting to see what the actual actions are. Um, but then at the same time, and of course, this is such a, a, a Jewish conversation to have to keep going back and forth about the same like issue. We, we have a joke um, within our faith. We say, you know, if you ask two rabbis one question, you get three answers. And I think, you know, if we're talking about Kabbalah's relationship with Thelema and the Golden Dawn, there's, there's a lot of different answers packed in there. Yeah, and, and Crowley is certainly a multitudinous, infamous, powerful figure in our occult history. Um, so, you know, there's there's that. Um, but at the same time, I yeah, I do think that a lot has been taken from Judaism that needs to be... Hmm, that knowledge of where it comes from is is really important and and i think that we're starting to see a little bit more of that now it's it's almost like a few years ago there was this wave of kind of taking all the things that had been jam-packed into wicca and putting them back in their respective places and and cultures and that doesn't mean that those things aren't meant to be shared necessarily um but to recognize where they're coming from is, is so incredibly important. Um, and I will say too, with the golden Dawn and Thelema, you know, they're not just taking from Kabbalah. Um, they're, they are drawing from so many other sources and, and places and magic historically has had a level of syncretization. Um, but it's easy to forget where these things come from if nobody's talking about it. So, you know, part of my interest in this now is to, is to talk about it, you know, to be in both worlds and to say, Hey, like this is here and this is there. And this is where things intersect. And this is what doesn't feel right. You know, I, I think something that something we forget as occultists is that the occult is a living, breathing practice. Um, And that's also something that we forget within Judaism as well. Like you said, you know, we're a people of the book. Um, but the, we, <laughs> we're bound by the book, uh, but we haven't lived exclusively by the book. You know, there's, there's, we've lived so many other ways and, and in so many interpretations of the book that, you know, Judaism and the occult are living, breathing things. And I think to engage in both, and have an ongoing discussion and experience with both things, that's what's important to me. And, and I think that helps kind of reconcile the and gives us a better understanding of what feels uncomfortable in Western esotericism, uh, what we can continue to use, what we shouldn't at all, and what needs to be maybe revised a little bit. Yeah. Oh, God, I love that answer so much. Um, because, yeah, that was a that was kind of what I ended up reconciling in my own heart when I decided to teach how I read tarot through a Kabbalistic lens. And I was like nervous, like, was I going to get catch some shit for this <laughs> from like other Jewish practitioners? And then I was just my thought was really like, well, as long as I can argue my defense for it, they won't care. <laughs> so that's yeah. all that matters. Well, absolutely. And, you know, in a way, that's a very that's a very uh, Jewish approach. I was talking to uh, my colleague, Brother Moses, years ago, and we were talking about Jewish exorcism, which he knows far more about than I do. But he was saying, you know, even Jewish exorcism is is so much more Jewish. It's so much more judicial. You know, it's not just I send you out. It's like here... 
uh, here are the legal reasons why you don't belong. And this is what we can do legally uh, to send you out. And this, you know, this, this is the argument that I'm going to make against you. And uh, let's hear your counter argument. You know, it's, it, it's a very Jewish experience um, and, and a very uh, important one. I, I was thinking about the term children of Israel um, earlier this week. And the word Israel in Hebrew means struggle with God. Um, so our, our chosen name by the divine as a Jewish people is that of struggle, that of, um, uh, of friction and uh, maybe dichotomy. And, you know, it's, it's, it's not just part of our experience. It's in, <laughs> it's in the name. And I, and I think that's really cool it's cool that that's built in there and it's cool that you know we have been encouraged by our sages and kind of ascended masters in judaism to continue to question it's so important and there is no one way um i was listening to a podcast years ago with Dr. Justin Sledge, who runs the Esoterica YouTube channel. I love him so, so much. Um, Me too. Bake a cult crush on him. <laughs> yeah, same, honestly. And, you know, it, it's it's great. His, his perspective is wonderful because it's purely historical and archaeological. And, you know, it's not about his opinion. It's about this is what has, what is in occult history and where you can read more about it, find more about it. But he's, he's talking about Jewish religion and practices in, in this podcast. And I love the term that he said, he said, there have always been many different Judaisms and I, that just really resonated with me now. And, you know, even in a kind of more, straightforward sense yeah we have um you know the orthodox sect we have the reform sect uh the conservative sect, etc but then you know outside of that there have been so many other peoples and practices and judaism is not a monolith it has always been this quilt work of so many different things and ideas and people um and I think that's that has also helped kind of reconcile my own practices with magic um, because, you know, magic and the occult itself is not a monolith either. But, you know, to, to kind of say, hey, I, I think that there are a lot of us doing a lot of different things. And then to see that be the case in history, um, time and memorial, it's it's empowering more than anything. Yeah, I completely agree. And I also think like what you're touching on right now is a really good demonstration of what you were saying earlier about the intersection between Judaism and queerness. Yeah. Because like you said, this idea of struggles with God can kind of be said <laughs> about the queer identity as a whole as well. Yeah. And this idea of kind of just being translucent, being opaque, being able to solidify in certain yeah. uh, situations by will and then retreating back into an opaque state seems like very much a, the embodiment of queerness as well as this embodiment of moving in and out of different areas of Judaism even. Yes, absolutely. I mean, the, the big thing that comes to mind with that is, is well, two things. Um, in some of my queer magic classes, I talk about how the magician card in the tarot is a very queer, um, a very queer card. Why? Well, for a lot of reasons. If you look at the Smithwaite deck, the magician's very androgynous, right? Um, in those big robes and the kind of gender nondescript. Also, the magician is ruled by Mercury, and Mercury is 
a very queer, you know, literally mercurial uh, planet and planetary energy. Um, but I also talk about how the magician is, is almost something to strive for within the queer community because the magician works above and below. And that means that, you know, we all come from different places and perspectives and there's always going to be somebody you know uh in a position more above us or more below us uh we i talk about it a lot of times in terms of like mutual aid within the queer community you know like there there will be somebody in our community that is more privileged than us and there's always going to be somebody less privileged than us and you know our responsibility as queer witches within our community is to to be able to operate above and below for the sake of ourself and for the sake of others. And that above and belowness uh, has been such a huge kind of archetype in queerness and femme mysticism. Um, the other thing that it makes me think of is, is Inanna, the goddess Inanna and how she is the queen of the heavens and the underworld. Um, she doesn't just descend, she ascends. It's it's both of those things. And I think to be able to switch between those two worlds externally and internally is a very queer thing. To be able to be in the depths of our own experience and also externalize that or not, or you know, transform depending on where we're at in our life and who we are um that above and below is like that's that's so queer to me and it goes it goes back to even the star of david that we were talking about you know it is the above and below merging and blending and unifying okay so that made me think of in the sefer yetzira where it's talking about running and returning this idea of oscillating back and forth between above and below as well as the concept that all and correct me if I'm wrong but my understanding of the way that the actual Hebrew works in the Sefer Yetzirah is that it's always advocating for you to run down like you're not going up into the heavens you're going down into the earth yeah and it's this idea that by going down, you're actually going up. So it's also mm -hmm. kind of mercurial in this topsy-turvy way of we go down to go up yeah. and we run in order to return and we return in order to run. And <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. It's, it is very paradoxical um, in, in, a, uh, in a really thrilling way, I think. Maybe that's the the like occult nerd of me talking and <laughs> like oh this is this is so fun but it's just confusing, um, <laughs> as as is you know such with uh, so many things that we we talk about and, and study but yeah you know I, I there's this idea even in the tree of life in the Sefer wrote that yeah Makut is at the bottom it's kingdom it's it's the kind of stump of the tree of life for lack of a better word but the secret is that the tree of life isn't rooted in malkut it's rooted in keter it's rooted in the crown the very the very top of the tree of life you know the roots are at the top and everything branches out below that um so you know to root yourself in your spiritual work and spiritual path that is going to bring you higher and, and closer to where you want and need to be on a spiritual and mystical level. Um, I think that's important. And there's also a, a kind of a lesson in humility within that paradox. It reminds me of a story that uh, one of my old Judaic teachers taught us in day school there's a story about Rabbi Akiva and three other rabbis who were all trying to reach enlightenment and basically climb the ladder to the heavens and, uh, you know, commune with Hashem, commune with the divine. And the story goes that, you know, each of these three rabbis 
go so deep into their, you know, enlightenment meditation and they, they end up ascending and they go up there so fast and have no connection to the earthbound world that they all end up, you know, one bursts of flames. The other one has another untimely and bizarre death. And the third one does as well. But Rabbi Akiva was the only rabbi of the four that were able to obtain enlightenment because he kept an anchor to the earthbound material world through the entirety of his spiritual process. Um, it was because he was able to still stay grounded in the below that he could be fully above. And I, and I really like that lesson. I think that's a really important lesson in spiritual work and in humility and also kind of recognizing that, you know, we are here in this lifetime, in this form, because we're supposed to be. And, you know, it's, it's that, it is a very Kabbalistic thing to, to recognize that attainment or ascension requires a necessary balance with that descent. Mm, oh, love that. And interestingly enough, that was making me think about sex magic and like why sex magic and interacting with sexual energies can be such a profound way of achieving that, you know, enlightenment of the divine. Mm -hmm. And Judaism itself has a long history of, of encouraging sexual ritual, yeah. even though what that sexual ritual looks like has changed pretty drastically over time, <laughs> I would say. Um, but I feel like if you, uh, in contrast to maybe like any kind of pure purity <laughs> yeah. way of, of doing this, conversation with the divine almost seems counterintuitive like you would just become too heady you wouldn't be able to bring it back mm -hmm. down and like through wearing the garment of the flesh and allowing these like invoking the divine masculine and feminine into our own bodies and letting the ritual be a performance within the space of Malkuth as our temple helps with that aspect of grounding absolutely absolutely I, I actually think that some of the best arguments that support that case is in the hasidic movement of judaism um you know along with the traditional like black robes that you wear for special religious occasions there are also black belts that you tie off um uh around your waist and uh one of the explanations that i had heard through a member in the Jewish community was that the black belt symbolizes your presence and separation between the above and below. You know, it's, it's recognizing your two realms, even the, the kippa, the yarmulke, the skull cap that we wear in Judaism. It's to recognize our material presence in, within the divine that's big. Um, and there are specific mitzvot and commandments that encourage um, sexual intimacy during the Sabbath and other occasions. Um, it's, it's very important. And, you know, Kabbalistically, too, I, one of my favorite little details about the Shekhinah is there's this belief that she sleeps in the embrace of the cherubs on the Ark of the Covenant. There's a reason why the cherubs are, they're not fully embracing each other, you know, their, their wings are outstretched, but there's space between the two of them. And that's because the Shekhinah is there. So, you know, when you are communing with another person sexually, it's not just the communion between you and the person you're with, but there is that divine communion with the Shekhinah as well. And that is so the access point to the divine feminine in, in a Kabbalistic and Jewish context. Do you think that you could expand a little bit more on the similarities that you've noticed between the Shekhinah and Babylon? So, yeah, a lot of it is personal 
experience um, when I kind of sat and done some meditation and channeling that feels very present. I think the big thing on a more philosophical level, perhaps, is that the Shekhinah and Babylon are are more of this like idea of the divine feminine. You know, neither of them are a specific goddess per se, but they are so much bigger than that. Um, the goddesses mm-hmm. are embodied within Babylon or within the Shekhinah. That uh, it just feels big. Um, so, you know, the, that kind of abstraction <laughs> with both of them, I feel like are, uh, there's similarity there. There's also some tale, I can't remember where it is, <laughs> where, where I read this, but it, it, stu- it has stuck with me for years. Um, I, I, I think I, I read it in a book called A Return to Eros, which is beautiful. It's about kind of Shekinah worship in everyday life and wonderful book. Um, but there's a story about the Shekinah exiling herself on two like flaming lions, which is a very Babylon adjacent image. Just as, you know, she rides on her seven headed beast um, as these great cities are crumbling around her. Um, There's a very similar tale about the Shekinah. So, you know, I, I think Babylon in many ways is an evolution of the Shekinah archetype um and i i I, i'm laughing because i feel like this is kind of coming through (laughs) right now uh like as a little bit of a message but it feels like shekhina or the it feels like babylon is shekhina unveiled a little bit um she's that the unbridled and more feral and fiery aspect of the Shekhinah that that intersection feels very very strong as far as spirit and the energy that they both hold but those those are a couple couple ways where I I feel like they're similar yeah I, I loved that oh the Shekhinah unveiled as if like Babylon is the fury of Shekinah from being exiled. Yeah, yeah. Or, you know, it's if there's that hidden aspect of the Shekinah, then Babylon is the revealed. And, you know, they are that one and the same to some degree. But I've always felt that kind of interplay um, when comparing the two. But like I said, I, I think... Even more than that, they, they feel very much like containers for the goddess. So kind of on the same vein, one thing that I have noticed in my studies of Babylon literature, mm-hmm. a lot of people who like to work with Babylon like to work also with Lilith. And I'm never really sure if these people understand Lilith from a a Jewish perspective or if it's all yeah. just growing out of this, like, Kenneth Grant, you know, magical revival <laughs> narrative <Yeah. laughs> or where they're, where they're getting this from. But, like, my understanding of Lilith is from a Kabbalistic perspective, and she is basically the Shekinah's shadow, the Shekinah... Like the if the Shekinah is turned away from the Zin Anpin, who is like basically our higher self in in Tifereth, mm-hmm. and she's looking at his reflection, which is Samael, and he's turned away from her and looking at her reflection, which is Lilith, and then they are copulating with each other's shadow self, which is what creates all of the misconceptions of the mind and body that we experience in this world. So do you, I'm not exactly sure what my question is exactly, except maybe (laughs) do you 
agree with this revitalization of Lilith working or do you work with her as as an extension of what you're doing with Babylon? Do you see Lilith maybe as potentially being Shekinah unveiled and that there can be some sort of crossover there as well or? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So um, I, I, I personally do not work with her in that way. Um, and that approach definitely is more driven by Kenneth Grant's work in, in teaching. Um, I think that there's a lot of misinterpretation around Lilith. Um, <laughs> and I, I think that a lot of times she gets overly emphasized in neo-paganism. Um, and she gets very confused with a goddess as well, but in, you know, in kind of the more traditionally Jewish perspective on Lilith is she is a demon. She is the fallen um, demon from the Garden of Eden. And because of that, she doesn't align with goddess territory. And also historically, when Jewish people were worshiping specific goddesses, they were actively going out of their way to keep Lilith as far away from them as possible. <laughs> um, so while there was Shekhinah worship and Asherah worship and Inanna worship in some parts of you know, Jewish Sumeria, um, Lilith was absolutely not a spirit that you would want in your home. <laughs> so, it, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting seeing how that has kind of been um, revisioned, revised uh, into Jewish magical practice. However, I think Lilith is, is really cool. And I think that there's, there's a lot that you can gain as far as empowerment and sexual autonomy and, shadow work through working with Lilith. So I, I do work with her just in, in a different way. And I don't work with those specific connections and associations that Grant brought into the tree of life. However, I do uh, relate Lilith back to the Klipot, which are kind of the, the husks, the shells of, of the Sephirot on the Tree of Life. I think that is really interesting. Um, so she, you know, she makes an appearance uh, there, but it's not quite as, it's not quite as grandiose as a lot of Western practitioners have, you know, kind of a, a adopted to her. Yeah, I like that answer. So... Shifting gears just a tiny bit, I would like to know in what, so when I do my own study of the Sephirot and like the Tree of Life, I think there's this really obvious diagram, like you were saying earlier, of gender neutrality being how we engage the middle pillar. Uh, would yeah. you mind expanding on that at all? Yes, absolutely. Um well, I think, you know, it's interesting because there have been gendered associations with kind of the left and right side of the um, Sifi wrote. But even in Kabbalah, it's not the masculine and feminine side of the tree of life. It's the pillar of mercy and the pillar of severity. And even that is more like conceptual than gendered. Um, there is an idea in kind of more classical Kabbalah that the tree of life um, is a kind of different parts of it make up a, like a divine family. Um, so like there's the mother's side of the tree of life, the father's side, um, which gets into a little bit more like gendered ideas, but the middle pillar absolutely is that, is that communion of all things. Um, of all of the aspects on the tree of life, on the Sephira, um, or on the, yeah, the Eitz I think what's interesting too is 
when you're first starting to look at the tree of life and look at the meanings of all the stuff you wrote and maybe start to study some of the planetary associations as well, the associations almost feel like unexpected. Like it's so, it's so cool to me that Netzach is victory, but it's ruled by Venus. And that feels very empowered in a way, you know, and, and mercy that Sephira is ruled by Jupiter and to look at mercy, not as a passive thing or a feminine thing. It's a Jupiterian thing. And that gives so much meaning to what that planetary energy is and also what the energy of the Sephira is itself, you know, to recognize that Chesed, it's mercy by way of authority and receptivity. That's really powerful. So when I look, you know, when I, when I do my own work with the tree of life, it feels very more like planetary than gendered to me. And the middle pillar is a, reflection of that it also makes sense you know if if we're going with you know the tree of life and the planetary associations the planets that take center stage in the middle of the tree of life is the sun and the moon you know we have the sun with tiferet and we have the moon with yesod that union of solar and lunar energy feels very like blended if we're talking in like traditionally gendered ways, you know, um, like, of course there's, there's like, we use the Venus and Mars aspects a lot in like gendered conversation around magic, but to have like solar and lunar, that's usually what we lean to, right? Like we have the solar energy, which is usually traditionally masculine and the lunar energy, which is traditionally feminine um, in the most like archetypal sense. Those are the two planets right at the center of the tree of life so i feel like there is that union for sure and it aligns as well with some other eastern perspectives on energy within the body you know there are the masculine and feminine like meridians and and sides of the body and then there is that like that central meridian that combines everything it's there in the tree of life too yeah, you know, one of the things that I think I've always felt is super cool about that is the bottom two on both the Pillar of Mercy and the Pillar of Severity, Hod and Nesach, which are ruled by Mercury and Venus, are considered to be hermaphroditic, uh, which yeah. is just a weird sync because, like, that's a Greek concept, but this is... Uh, Hebrew attributes of things and it works I like the idea of Nesach being a an expansive Sephirot that receives and I like this idea of Hod being like passive that expands because it's like I'm receiving knowledge in Hod that that is the way that it is receptive and then I speak it out like I have to receive first and then speak. So you get the side of the pillar that it's on, but then you get that cross-pollinization. And I don't know, like I, I love playing with that a lot is in what ways Venus is actually hermaphroditic because we're constantly kind of <laughs> attributing Venus to the feminine when actually an in antiquity, it is much more the case that the divine feminine has this martial quality to it. And that's something yeah. that we've almost kind of lost um, over time. So it almost helps me again to like dip my toes into how ancient magicians might have viewed these energies to think of Venus as hermaphroditic and Mars as really the beginning of the pillar of rest of reception of severity absolutely i think that's huge and i i also i i think that's why i appreciate babylon so much in a contemporary context because it it puts that power back in the goddess in a big way you know she is girt with a sword and also has her chalice you know she has her cup there is that like that yoni and and phallus thing but both of those 
tools are very empowered for her. And, and yeah, I, I absolutely love that, you know, Venus in this Kabbalistic context is more active than passive. And I love that what you're saying about that Venus and mercurial connection being very hermaphroditic, but then also those two connect with Yisod, which is foundation, which is the moon. And if you look at where the Hermes archetype shows up in more Semitic parts of the world, you have figures like Thoth, who is, you know, the divine scribe and magician and is a lunar god, you know? So like there is that that hermaphroditic Venusian mercurial energy coming through a lunar deity. That's all kind of in that last triad of the tree of life. And I think that's so, so cool. And it almost feels like that final push into Malkut. Um, there's all these kind of heady energies associated with the Sephirot. And then the last three is all about kind of finalizing everything until you get to Malkut. And I also think that Malkut is important in, in the gender conversation and in the queer, in the queer Kabbalah conversation as well, because Malkut contains the energies of all the other Sephirot within it. Um, so all the sides and colors and planets that are in the rest of the tree of life, it all sits in that kingdom there at the bottom of the middle pillar. Um, and, you know, to relate that back to us, because that's what Kabbalah should be about is, you know, we are that Malkut, you know, we are that container for all of these energies. It's all, it's all within us. I, when I'm explaining queerness and, and like gender identity to people and my, you know, my own queer experience, I think a lot of the Walt Whitman quote, I am large, I contain multitudes. And I just, it's so beautiful. That line is so like Malkut oriented. Uh, It's, it's there in that way. And I, and I think that's so, so beautiful. Yes, I love that. And and that's why Malkut is like four different shades of brown (laughs) instead of one color. So one thing that maybe I should have asked you earlier, but whatever, we're we're free flowing it. In what I know I've had people answer this question on the podcast before, but it's almost always a different answer to the same question. So I think we can all agree that queerness is a necessity of you know, embodying the witch, but can you just give me a little bit of your own thoughts on why you think that is? Yeah, absolutely. Oh my goodness. There's so, there's so many different ways to answer this question. I'm trying to think of like the, the best entry point for this. Um, I, I do feel like witchcraft and queerness you know both of those experiences are that of knowing yourself um and there is that interplay of within and without and above and below that is just what you are in whether you are a witch or a queer person um, my friend said a long time ago, you know, once we, once you come out as a queer person, you never stop coming out. You know, that's an, it's an ongoing process of you interacting with the world around you and, and you, you know, coming out as, as something that is not, you know, within a specific like normative structure. Um, I think witchcraft is very similar in that you know you don't just do one spell and then call it a day you know it becomes this ever unfolding path um that you're on and the longer you on it the the longer you're on it the more your interaction with the rest of the world changes and and vice versa um so i i think you know 
that intersection shows up there. Um, I also think that intersection shows up as far as queers and witches being outliers um, historically and societally. Um, we are in this zeitgeist right now where witchcraft and queerness is being <laughs> both embraced and feared. And I think it, I, I, it's just really interesting to look at this, this time and to see how they're both interacting with each other. Like the, the narrative is, is more related to both of them than it ever has been, even though there have been queer people who have been persecuted as witches, uh, in in history there have been jewish people who have been persecuted as witches many 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 times um so you know i i think that outlier <laughs> aspect is is a way that they're both related i i think a lot about something that peter gray talks about in apocalyptic witchcraft he talks about being at the end of the pointed finger and you know our oppressors that have called us certain things throughout history that's something to claim and find power in so especially now i see so many people within the queer community and many people in the jewish community and other marginalized communities leaning towards witchcraft because we've known on that ancestral level that we we've all been at the end of the pointed finger so to claim that and turn a spell on that is is a beautiful exciting powerful thing oh yeah i completely agree i absolutely love what your friend said about continually coming out of the closet as if being queer and embracing queerdom is this constant work of art which coincidentally uh as far as like the Golden Dawn system of Kabbalah goes, the <laughs> art card or the temperance card actually does sit in the middle pillar between Yesod and Tifereth. And it is the card of the alchemical transformation, which is kind of what you're, you were making me think of. It's because once you come out and you say to the world, I am queer, that is you doing the, the solve. You're breaking down all these things that you thought you had to be or ways that you had to present or mythos that you were telling yourself about who you were or who society is in order for you to survive and you're you know, coagula, you're completely removing it all. And then solve art, this idea, I've come out of the closet now. It's putting it all back together and constantly putting it back, rearranging it in different ways. And today I'm presenting yeah. this way and tomorrow I'll present this way. And it's a constant rediscovering and relearning of who the self truly is by giving yourself permission to embrace both lunar and solar energies and and what can you create now that you've given yourself permission to do that absolutely absolutely and you know it's like we we call this idea of you know spiritual uh attainment the great work and to be queer and in your queer experience and to take apart and put together again like that's part of the queer great work yes. it's it's a special special place to be and a special form to be in in this lifetime it is very um alchemical in a lot of ways oh, love that the beautiful beautiful explanation well, this has been so amazing cooper i've enjoyed every minute of this and i I feel like I've learned a lot, but it's been this like subconscious experience. Like I, <laughs> I've been in taking the vibrations and then feeling lighter as the conversation has gone by. Oh, <laughs> that's so sweet. Well, I feel like this is, you know, discussing is one of the best ways to, to receive and to learn and, and share. So this has been such a, such a treat for me too. Cute. Okay. Well, before I, I let my guest go, I always ask if they have final words. So if you have anything you want to leave the audience with, this is your moment. Yeah. Um, 
honestly, I I am I'm so here for the journey with the rest of the magical community of you know uncovering our work and sharing our work. I think that <clears throat> we're here to do and share and transform. So please feel free to connect with me on platforms. Um, my Instagram is at Cooper Kaminsky. Um, I'm private right now, but that just makes it more uh, cozy and intimate to, to connect and share. And um, this has been this, this has been such a such a treat talking about so many different things and intersections today. And I, I want to thank you for having me on the podcast. Oh, it's such a pleasure and a joy. I've actually been wanting you on here ever since I had Brother Moses on, but I thought it would be good to give some space between all the Jewish content. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> also, I know that you teach a lot of classes. Uh, not geomancy. I've done some divination stuff. Um, I, I do a lot of Jewish folk magic. Um, we spent a long time talking about Kabbalistic stuff today, um, but uh, Judaism has a rich history of, of folk magic and, and practices as well. Um, I primarily teach right now through Catland Books in Brooklyn. Um, they've been doing some awesome, awesome virtual classes over the last couple of years. Um, you can definitely find me there more throughout the year. Um, and I'm also going to teach um, a Jewish folk magic class through Spiritus Arcanum's um, Voices of Folk Magic series um, in December. I, I'm going to kind of teach a Jewish folk magic then and now <laughs> oriented class. So if you're interested, um, stay connected on my social media and also follow those wonderful, wonderful um community spaces uh because there's so much out there to learn and they're they are wonderful beautiful people to um yeah to learn i love from. the i love catland books and i love matthew venus of spiritus arcanum those are definitely great great places to put your nose in if you're looking for class information or just information on witchcraft in general i know i really want to take your Voices of Folk Magic class. So you'll see me there. I think December is a great month for, for Jewish magic. If we're following Moses's uh, hypothesis that the yad heh mm -hmm. is eternal, then it's a great month for that. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And yeah, I, I think that his hypothesis with that is so fascinating. I've been thinking about that so much since... Well, since you had him on the on the show, um, but yeah, December is a great time for that. So December eighteenth and eight, eighteen is a very auspicious day, or, or I guess uh, number in Judaism as well. Um, so please join me for that uh, in the late fall, early winter. Well, thank you again for everything, Cooper. This was such a joy and a privilege, and. I'm glad to have shared this space with you immensely. Thank you so, so much. Um, the pleasure is absolutely mine. <laughs>